0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate.
1: Indeed, we are. Hello, this is the C86 Show. I'm David Easton, and I'll be with you for the next 50-plus minutes. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade, but also we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of... Rubella Ballet because I spoke to the two members of the band Sid True Love and Zilla Minx to find out more about life, love, poetry and after a, a lot of casual chat at the beginning of the interview it's the getting to know each other and we spoke a lot about cats because we had a lot of had a lot of things in common especially our four-legged friends we got down to that exciting question that was the early musical influences and this was Zilla's reply. Zilla, take it away. Um,
2: There was glam rock and I was quite into that a little bit, you know, wearing lots of uh, sequins and silver flares and all the rest of it and big platforms. But um, I actually became a punk when I was 15, which was in 1976. So it was before the Sex Pistols were on TV. So it was kind of um, a progression of fashion for us really um to start off with it was something that was happening in my school and in east london where i lived um and i used to go to a place called the Lacey lady where um the damned you know a couple of them would turn up all dressed in black and stuff and you just see a couple of punks here and there so for me um it, it was my early years when i actually became a punk so yes it, quite different for me really and we and and i mean i did sort of completely miss the 60s i
1: remember watching a few of the um the beatles films and uh cliff richard summer holiday which <laughs> is a, a, a classic in of our time but did you yeah so were you you know like the the glam period did that sort of sort of like slightly slip
2: into your dna um yeah yeah i was you know like i said before i was 15 and, and became a punk i was actually into glam rock and for me being um, somebody who lived in East London, and um, that's where all the fashion, like all the um, clothes were made in East London. So um, we followed fashion really from yes. a very early age. And you know, every season there'd be different clothes that you'd be following, you know, to wear, and you'd want to get the latest fashion. But around um, about the age of 12, uh, me and my best friend, we used to make our own clothes anyway. So it was kind of a natural progression for me to be making punk clothes and, you know, looking for punk music and places that punks went to. So yes. it was kind of an exciting time. Did you ever I mean, because the big thing that was
1: slightly on the horizon, well wasn't because I'd sort of missed it, was kind of the hippie Woodstock generation. Did that did those kind of images ever sort of kind of Well
2: image? yes, because um, my mum and dad were hippies and my mum and dad came from Liverpool and my mum and dad were friends with the Beatles. So <laughs> you know it was um my mum and dad were quite young and they used to take us to Carnaby Street and we'd buy uh, they buy us the hippie clothes, you know. So I had a long hippie coat with uh, like a sort of Afghan sort of embroidered coat and things okay. like that. So I was very much into the hippie stuff. And also um, my parents took me to um, Hyde Park when um, – what's his name? Mick Jagger.
1: Yes, Brian Jones. Dressed, I think, yeah.
2: And, it, you know, so – um, I went there at an early age, and I remember that um, put you off I, forever yeah no, <laughs> it was very colorful, and I remember all the hippies and I remember the ringing of bells and it turned out that every hippie was wearing a little bit of string with a little tiny bell on it, so I got my mum there to buy me a hippie bell, so yeah, I was affected by the hippie thing, mainly um, the colors and you know, the freedom such as um, the free festivals, because the other free festival that was started then, of course, was the uh, Stonehenge Free Festival, which is um, where Crass knew Wally, who put on the free gigs, and um, that's also where Crass and Flux of Pink Indians played to the riot that... um, they were greeted with because the Hells Angels didn't want punks to be playing those gigs.
1: No, they they wanted Hawkwind. They didn't want any of that kind of, uh, yes, punk stuff. I know, it's kind yeah. of weird, wasn't it, looking back on it? Because there was also the Windsor Free Festival as well that Wally put on, wasn't there? Yeah,
2: Which, yeah I believe so. Yes. I, I only went to um, the Stonehenge Free Festival because I was on stage with um, Flux of Pink Indians when the riot started and we were all standing on stage as bricks came flying at us and I remember standing there thinking what's going on like and then I looked over and Colin the lead singer at Flux was on the floor with his head in Sid's bass drum and Sid was still playing and he, hadn't, he hadn't really realised what was going
0: on. <laughs> yeah, I was tripping and this bottle came flying in slow motion and it's him square on the head and it, it, was, it was it was in slow motion he went flying down head and bass drum yeah, that's
1: quite. Oh <laughs> ah. God! So yeah, so
2: so we're so, not going to spill
0: the whole story because I have actually written it word for word, moment for moment, in my book, and I'm not trying to. Uh, uh, it's not finished yet or anything, but but I have I, I've written down that story because it is it is absolutely horrific. I mean, when I was turning someone in a, an interview the other day. A lot of people think the punk at the beginning was um, was great. They were all right, running around, having a great time. You know, going to gigs and like meeting up and all, having a great time, and it, it wasn't like that at all.
1: No, it was the t- the uh, really
0: t- violent. It was really scary, and I was speaking to some of the, like some of the hardest people on the like in the scene, and they all say that some of the gigs were the scariest things they've ever done, like at like the Conway Hall, uh, like because um, we found out that the, the National Front through the leader guard, had like had, had a campaign to disrupt all of Crass and Poison Girls' gigs. And, of course, we were supporting all that, but we were doing supports for them in London. So we got involved with that a lot. And and then many years down the line, we found out there was actually a campaign to disrupt every gig that they did. So it's no wonder if you thought it was a bit... A well, bit it was very political
2: at the time, in the fact that, um, too, yeah. that racism was, you know, something that we had to fight at the time, which is why they brought in the Rock Against Racism gigs. Yes. And I supported it because it was one of those times where we had to stand up for.
0: Yeah, fighting skinners, like yeah, you know, because of your because of your political views. It was just insane. Like we're, we're there to 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 see a gig, to get into the music, to meet people of the same thing. And there's these people, and I, I don't, it was it was crazy. It was really really crazy.
1: Yes. Ed Sheeran has no idea, does he, really, when he gets on stage, what, what it could be like at Stonehenge with Hell's Angels. I mean, that was quite interesting because I know that Motorhead and Lemmy, I mean, they were, though they were classified as metal and all that, they were much more, he was much more part of that squat and punk scene than um, that a lot of people thought he was because he'd been in uh, Hawkwind, hadn't he?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, we knew uh, Lemmy. He used to he used hang out, out with out us at the, the music machine. And 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 the music. Oh,
1: yeah, he used to play Paul at the music machine
2: yeah, yeah, on upstairs. the top floor. Yeah, And so, he was
0: always in the same booth at the back cave. And at the
2: beginning, it he was, was very, a little really bit, um, you know, he uh, when we first knew him, punk was really in and heavy metal wasn't. So he took it to a good place. You know, Lemmy and had a good one, Lemmy
0: me, let me had a good one, though. Uh, I found out. Didn't actually happen to me, though. But um, it turned out that when you when you met Lemmy, if he if he liked you, he'd give you some of his speed. And what he'd do is, you get this massive knife out of his back pocket, and he'd stick the knife into the speed, and you had to snort it off the knife. And I think it was kind of like a, a an initiation sort of ceremony because if you were if you managed to get through it, then you like you talked to him. He was uh, he was a really he was lovely geezer. He was like a really nice bloke. But yeah, he yes. really wasn't at all kind of. Super heavy metal. And I came from Birmingham where heavy metal was in big time before I left uh, in 76 or 77. I, can't remember, I, think. I moved to London in 77, got a job. Uh, but I lived in the country, so everyone was in the status quo. It was horrible. Yes. Well, actually, I suppose... Well,
1: you, in hell. Because <laughs> um, Black Sabbath, I suppose, were almost the, the grand zero for heavy metal. But it's interesting you mentioned status quo, because the one band that you could never mention with any kind of uh, derogatory comment, because you get beaten up, because I come from the countryside, with status quo. The quo were like, my God. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> they were, they were, you know. I can remember being at school, just like yeah. frightened. And if you admitted you liked a, a band like the Beat or Two Tone, you were yeah. really, you were just beaten up. You, you just wouldn't survive. Did you, you did you that? Pardon.
2: Where did you live when that? Well, we happened? lived
1: in the um, East Anglia, you know, in Suffolk. Oh, land. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just, it was just that thing that you know it was like it was very. I suppose music was quite con- bizarrely quite conservative in that way that even though they thought they were rebellious, it was you know you couldn't you couldn't say you know it was very tribal basically. Well, definitely, it?
2: definitely. I mean, it was you know we were we were the punks, and then there was skinheads, and then there was uh, Teddy Boys, and then there was the heavy metal people, you know, and they would be wearing their jeans and their jean jackets, and they were you know a very different type of people to what punks were. And there was Rockers parents. and greasers.
0: There weren't just like one lot of bikes. But Lemmy
2: brought that all together, <laughs> didn't he? He brought the heavy metal and the punk together. And, you know, yeah. I mean, that's why he was wasn't he a bass player for the Dand as well, because he was really, you know, he really liked punk and got into it. And so, yeah. you know, it was a good crossover there between yes. Lemmy and Punt.
1: But he loved the MC5 as well. I think that was one yeah. of his kind of main bands. So when did you decide this is it, we're going to be in a band, because it was a, per, it was a kind no, of... No, no,
2: no, we never decided to be a band, no. We decided to be punks, and we were around a lot of people that were in bands, and it just so happened that um, we were living with Poison Girls. Um, yeah. We Epi got, in got invited,
0: we were at the first gig, but so I was at the second crash gig, and they invited us back to their... like We got invited back, I think they, I think they even gave us a lift on the first day, so we were at Dire Lash. Seeing what they did and kind of like they met, they kind of they involved us like immediately, and it was kind of like. But
2: also at the time, um, Pete Fender and Gemma. Now, Pete Fender was 14 and Gemma was 11. That's the son and daughter, of vice versa. And they were in a band called Fatal Microbes with Honey Bain, and um, she just left Fatal Microbes, and so they were without a band. And so you know, uh, Pete Fender was actually had been a musician for about four years, even though he's only 14. And Gemstone had been playing drums on Fatal Microbes. But um, in the house that we lived in, they had a a music rehearsal room, so with equipment in and a PA. And so um, Pete Fender and Gemma, sort of, they could go in there and they asked Sid if he wanted to go in there and play drums. And we sort of just messed around in there as well. But, um, you know, and then, as you know, one of the gigs that Crass had, they invited the audience up to play. And that was the first time Rubella Ballet had actually played in a. Um, public setting, but it was all very. We uh, weren't
0: well, called Rebel Ballet. We had um, no idea what we were doing. There was no plan. We didn't plan anything. It yes. There was nothing planned. Absolutely uh, nothing. And the
2: first few gigs were just, you know, here and there. People playing and
0: no money, you know, we got paid. You'd be lucky if you got, I mean, just just going in the van or being on stage with crass was just kind of the goal. It, that was our goal. Playing, I mean, I, I couldn't, I wasn't a drummer, I, I'd never played I was any a singer.
2: I'd never heard
0: instruments. My... We'd like, neither of us had sung, <laughs> only other than at, um, at school, in singing hymns.
2: Yeah, so it's different singing on stage with Mike yeah. and Sid playing his drums for the first time. We're both, um, poor working class people, you know, we're not, we weren't brought up yeah. um, learning instruments or anything like that. It was yeah, all our family
0: didn't us. have like saxophones and and like, uh, violins and oboes and, guitar, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. So it was
2: just something for us yeah. when we, you know, when we were in a place where we could actually um, play all these instruments and use the equipment that was around, it was you know, it was exciting. We're entertaining it was ourselves. Yeah.
0: It was boring. Uh, days used to be very long and very boring. So we, we would entertain ourselves by meeting other friends like, like us. Like we met poisons. We couldn't get, we, we, we couldn't believe they were sort of like really cool. And Dan and Gemma were the kids. And we kind of all got on like a house on fire. When I first met Crass, it was like by the end of the week, I felt like they were more a family, more like a family to me than, than my actual family was. Yeah, I mean, um, that um, I spent days there at dinner. They'd go, oh yeah, we'd stay for dinner. You'd be sitting next to, like, a week after meeting them, you'd be sitting next to Steve, shoulder to shoulder, at this little table at Dialas eating dinner, in shifts, <laughs> with D G dishing out the food. It was
1: bizarre, surreal. God, it was off its time. And, and did you sort of, have, obviously, Penn was kind of one of the main, uh, he was also a drummer, wasn't he? Um, did right. you, did that sort of inspire Because I know I've done an interview with both Steve and Penn, and obviously they're, they're quite different people, really. But um, yeah. but the Dial House was a very kind of special place, wasn't it? Because I sort of, yes, it was quite an open house, and obviously there was a lot of people and a lot of influencers coming through. So was yeah. it kind of that feeling that anything was possible being within their kind of umbrella? Sorry.
0: It's really weird. It's like Sanctuary. It's something else I've written in great detail because it's not, it's, you don't just go to number 32 at a street and knock on the door. Uh, I won't give it away, but you know, it's, it's way more complex than that. And just, and when you finally get there, it's like, I don't know, it, like, like the front door's never locked. You, well, you the other
2: thing, of course, is that both Poison Girls and Crest... Um, with DIY, so they were doing their own artwork, they were printing the artwork, they were doing posters, they were organising their own gigs, um, you know, so all of that it, it makes, everybody, banners, makes everybody very yeah. busy. And it, I already it, came from a background of making my own clothes, It was great. So it, beginning to make posters and lyric books and, you, know, you see,
0: there, were, there weren't any youth clubs or anything like that, I remember leaving the youth club in my village and like sticking my fingers up and going like, oh, you bunch of losers, because there was... Like you said, like listening to the top of the pops and playing stuff from the charts, which was just mind longingly boring. It was, it was like we found, it was like we found people that were into not in the stuff.
1: It was all so new. It was, uh, it just felt really good for me. Yes, absolutely, but you did sort of not get catapulted, but things did progress very quickly for the band, didn't it, because you know you were yeah. you obviously yeah. were yeah. in quite a community which is you know is really important, and you know people started reviewing singles and John Peel sessions, so you must have felt like, wow, the stars have sort of lined up on this one
2: um I think. But it did sort of suddenly start to take off, but then I think we just realised that we were in a position with Crass and Poison Girls where they were already um, attracting large crowds and doing well. So, you know, we, we were happy to be part of their scene, but um, I think it did sort of take off quite quickly, but it also didn't because we, was, we didn't do a record with Crass. We, we stayed on um, Eccentric's label, which was Poison Girls' label, which we didn't do till around about 1982. So it took quite a while to do all these things. I mean, we didn't know how to do a record or who to do it with or anything like that. And so when Poison Girls made our first ballet bag cassette, which was in a bag with a poster and a badge and a lyric book, um, I think they costed it on about $5,000. Oh, $500. Okay, 500 yeah. And then when they were sold, we never thought to uh, make any more or sell any more. We just... It just wasn't something that boys and Girls decided to do. So I think it took some time before we realised how the music world worked and what we should be doing.
0: Whereas Crass had more of a machine. So they were like, if they needed to, with like a new smell, if they needed to sell 50,000, they could like, they could literally, you know, they could make that many stock to distribute. Whereas we were... Uh, it was more of a DIY thing with with uh, poison girls, but they did they did actually openly say they were in competition with crass So it's not like um, and then I mean another thing is that like people got the fact that we were dressing Like the we wore dayglow as a direct kind of um, Attack against crass and they took it completely out of proportion. There was nothing like that. We just wanted to be different
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Crass like, even encouraged us. They even said wow Go, it's fantastic trust you Sid to come up like you and Zilla to come up with something as great as that and they actually encouraged us to be different
1: yes because a couple of weeks ago I did an interview with Annie Anxiety and <laughs> yeah. um she she you know was in New York and then sort of meets Steve and then comes back and lives in Dial House as well which there was a lot of things going on wasn't there there was a lot of energy and and people sort of coming and going but obviously meeting up and creating quite interesting scenes
2: well yeah, Annie was um, she the first singer with yeah. uh, Rubella Ballet. So, you know, the first two or three gigs Annie had been the lead singer. So, um and we were good friends, you know. We we hung out with Annie a lot. I took her for jobs up in Leicester Square in my little mini uh, Morris Minor, you know, and They should never have time. an audition. It was, it was, it always, was always We no. used to, we used to
0: just jam. We we would jam the afternoons away, you know, and um and Annie and
2: Annie would turned up at the beginning And then she didn't want to do it. She wanted to be um, a solo artist and she was a good solo artist. So she was was happier being a solo artist and, I think think
1: she worked a lot with Adrian Sherwood. So then, can you remember sort of the John Peel sessions? Because you did one in 82, which was with the the guy from Mot the Hoop or Dale Griffiths. I just wondered how your, what your memory of that was like.
2: (laughs) (laughs) um, We was really excited to be asked and it was only because um, John Peel's, I think, producer had got in touch with, was it John Walsh, had got in touch with West Gales, yeah, and um, so Poison Girls told us, and we was really excited because we thought, oh, yeah, we're going to meet John Peel, and it's going to be brilliant. <laughs> um, but instead, we just went to the studio in May of Vale, and there was a producer and
0: an engineer, and an
2: engineer there. And um, it was the first time that we were going to use a studio, and it was a computerized studio. Well, the computer wasn't working, and we had to sit there for four hours waiting for the so computer like, to it's work. It's a
0: million-pound yeah. studio. Like yeah. I've probably got a million pounds worth of plugins now, but...
2: Yeah. It was like
0: yeah, it was a million pound studio and it was on a timed lockout and you had to wait for a certain time before we could get into I mean
2: yeah, so the, uh, the producer or the engineer they they went off to the pub came I think the producer went the off to the pub and, oh, it geez. took some time and uh, we was, yeah we really enjoyed the first session we just you know you do the recording and um you know you wait and you hear it and we, told all, three we, times. we
0: basically we told the two guys from BBC to go to the pub Cause that's what they wanted to do. And then it was like us and the engineer that did the um the mix basically, wasn't it? Yeah.
2: Um and then sometime later I was doing um a TV programme called Whatever You Didn't Get with um Tony what's his name? The comedian. Anyway, with vice versa and um Boy George and Dave Anion and some other people like um uh Wan. Oh yes Michael and um John Peel was also there, so it was it was filmed at the um at the Ace in Brixton, you know the big venue that's now Ministry of Sound, I think. Oh, okay, and, um, okay. So it was this weird program, and whilst I was there, John Peel turned up, and I I went and said hello to him because I hadn't, you know, we hadn't met him the first time, so I went and introduced myself and thanked him for the uh, the first John Peel session, and he said to me, "Oh, you were so good. Do you want another session?" I was like, "Yeah, wicked." So um, we did a second session as well. So we've done two John Peel sessions, both played three times, and...
1: He used to play us on the World Service as well, which was always pretty exciting. Yes, well, that was, yes, because as the title says, it's the World Service. But I I can remember sort of used to record his 30-minute World Service show. (laughs) It was always quite interesting. So then you had a, you had, so from those kind of early beginnings, you then did a a tour going to Italy to to promote... um, Forty, was it 42F, the single?
2: I think it was before 42F. It was probably just after we'd done the ballet bag because it was around about, it must have been about 1982 because um, it was the first time I'd ever flown. I was 23, so it was the first time we'd ever, I'd ever been in an aeroplane. Um, and it was just a little tiny aeroplane and we flew to Italy, to Venice. And somebody came and picked us up, took us to his house and uh, we did this, it was like um, the first gig was in a village and it was like a village square and we played that and then afterwards we were told um yeah i'm not coming with you but you're getting on the train to go to all the other gigs <laughs> and i was like on the train and we had no equipment or anything because they said they'd provide it all and we just went from little village to little village playing and sometimes we'd turn up and the the drum kit was uh, held together with string and sid was sitting on a a breeze block to actually play and it was kind of um Well, we didn't get paid, so and no one was giving us any food or anything to drink. So after about a week, me and Gemma were quite ill. Um, Couldn't drink the water. We ended up at a a big spot called Birrus, which was a brilliant spot, and everyone was really nice to us there. But after that, they um, they put us on a train to go home without any food or drink or any money. We was on the train for two days, really hot, and you know, luckily there was a bit of water on the train. But so we was glad to get home because that was our first tour on our own. But we'd also been um, On a tour with Poison Girls to Holland, so we'd had a good time.
0: With Colin for Conflict. Yeah, with Colin for Conflict as well, because he was
2: going out with Gemma at the time. (laughs) So we had a good time in Holland.
0: Yeah, so we were talking the other day. It turns out that Colin Conflict went out with Gemma, and Steve who Gemma, who was our bass guitarist, and Steve Igerman went out with Zilla's sister, who was our bass guitarist.
1: Wow, it's like Fleetwood Mac, isn't it? It's just a <laughs> very,
2: it's very, it's
1: a very complex story. You'll have to I was
0: talking to Colin the other day, I was
1: like, Isn't that weird? You and Steve basically dating our bass guitarist." <laughs> Wow, rock and roll. It is quite interesting, isn't it? So how were you, you know, as the 80s were progressing, I can remember being very obsessed with John Peel and sort of buying the NME on a Wednesday. And, and, you know, at that time, the indie scene had sort of happened, or was happening sort of 83 to 87. So as the 80s were progressing, how, what was what was the sort of the state of the band and how was that sort of developing? Well, we, we
2: started off um, being a punk band and that's what we wanted to be. But um, Pete Fender quite quickly decided that he didn't want to be a punk. And so he suddenly started wearing silver trousers and he sprayed a pair of Wellington boots silver and wore them. So he, was, he suddenly decided he wanted to go back to being glam and playing sort of glam. He liked status quo. So that kind of moved us in a direction we didn't really want to go. But he then left and joined Omega Tribe. So um, then at that point we got another guitarist called Sean and he was kind of into a bit of goth goth type music really, so we sort of went a little bit more goth than, yeah, so that's why we're sort of punk, goth, you know, we come from the scene so early in 79 that um, when we actually went and played gigs as the headline band, we had people like Sex Gang Children, House Gang, Blood and Roses, they were supporting us and, you know, they later on became known as part of the goth scene, so it was, you know.
1: Well, it was quite, I mean, because um, you'd had the Batcave and Alien Sex Fiend and then all the, you know, the the usual people from the Mission to the Cult, the Cure, and I'm not sure about the Cure, though. But, uh, you know, there was there was quite a big goth kind of movement in the 80s, wasn't there? Because, again, it kind of goes back to quite a tribal thing. Cause, you know,
2: well, you, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, totally in Nessary, he used to turn up at Poison Girl's house and Crassie's house, and he was, like, full-on Native American look, really. And at that time, I remember there was... Um, Punks, you know, the punks sort of, some of them would be like cowboys and some of them would be like Native Americans. And so we had a sort of uh, cowboys and Indians type goth scene as well. And, you know, we went on tour with uh, Death Cult because we were good friends with Ian. And, uh, you know, there there was still not that much of a separation at that time until later when it became more separated, the goth and the punk scene. But to begin with, we were part of the punk scene that was goth as well. So... You know, it was uh, it was a bigger scene because everybody was part of the one scene, whereas now it's a little bit separated. Yes.
1: And what's your memories of recording the your second album, which was If, which was kind of 86? Because there was definitely at that stage, I, d- I remember that was before Ecstasy sort of hit in and, and, you know, the music scene changed again. I just wondered what it was like kind of recording that. And also you'd been going for sort of over five years, which is normally the time when most bands start to flag a bit. And split up, so you were still you were still trucking on pretty well then
2: yeah, um I think um you know as, as working class people we were when we was at school, we was expected to you know end up being i don't know Sid was going to be a chef, and I was been doing admin, but being punks, we was allowed to do music, and we really enjoy doing music all the time, mm. so I think it went fast for us, you know. It, was, it wasn't it was easy because we didn't have the money to always pay for things. For instance, if people asked us to play a gig in Liverpool, we'd have to pay the petrol and hire the van and pay it all up front. And if we didn't have the money, we couldn't do the gigs. So it was quite difficult to do things. And, um, you know, like I said, it took a long time before we actually got round to recording our first um, cassette and then first single. And when it came to If, um, we was approached by somebody that ran a record label up in Driffield um, and he had a recording studio there and he just recorded, was it The Mission or was it Sisters of Mercy? Mm. Mm. It was Sisters of Mercy, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we thought, oh yeah, sounds like a good enough offer because we didn't have the money to pay for our own recordings. So he offered to pay for a recording and we we went up to Driffield and we rehearsed in a, in yeah, a little we'll place play, for a week and yeah, then we recorded. Big flash
0: studio, yeah. because you can tell the sound of them. Um, if is, uh, I, I think it sounds really good.
1: Yes. And did Almost. you and did you go in already with the songs all developed already? No. no. We
0: went up there with nothing. We were with a cup with maybe a couple of ideas for songs, and we went into the studio, and we just made loads of stuff up. It, it just literally wrote it there and then in two weeks, wasn't it, uh, I, think, I
2: think we did a week's rehearsal and then two weeks to record it, yeah?
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Which is which is quite... Yeah, because I always remember Black Sabbath. I think they recorded that first album in an afternoon because they'd been playing it live for so long, hadn't they? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, the first album was definitely easier because it was the set that we was yeah. already performing. That's so, true. You know, that was yes. easy. But even though it was the set we was already performing, we was with um, an engineer that was quite interested in what we were doing because in those days, a lot of engineers just thought punk music was shit and didn't want to know. Um, so this... This engineer Ian,
0: he oh, was he was, he was really yeah. interested in us and he tried to um, help us to come up with things, different ideas. It? Yeah, it so he made us do different things, and approach, recording in a different way. It was, um, it was really
1: quite yeah it was brilliant. Yes, so when like you scream
0: this track called TV Screamer, where um he, where the he basically took all my cymbals off the kit and said right um. I'll oh, play it like that. I was just like, very tribal, crazy?
2: yeah. I mean, Sid's drumming was quite tribal as well, which was quite interesting, because when the goth scene started, it was very tribal. The sex Gang children, ritual, they were all into their tribal drumming as well, weren't they? So, I so think- we had a
0: very confusing sound of Dan and his glam sound, <laughs> me and my goth tribal sound. So I wondered if people couldn't figure out what, uh, what we sounded like.
1: Yes, but you'd, ob- you'd obviously got... You know, a hardcore following as well. Though you know, you sort of you've got yeah. your tribe, haven't you? Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely. Yeah. Quite, yeah. That's why we can keep going because obviously we still get asked to play gigs. So we obviously have a, a crowd that's still interested in watching us perform live and buying our records. Because I mean, it's now forty odd years that we've yeah. been playing.
1: <laughs> yes, which is amazing. So when you came to record the, the sort of last studio album of that kind of period, at the end of the rainbow, did it feel like? you knew it was the sort of coming towards the the end of that kind of period
2: uh yeah because it was um it was the, it was just coming up to the 90s really and um it was beginning to be the start of rave music so a lot of venues were were changing over to dj's and didn't want bands to be playing there anymore they wouldn't pay us so it was beginning to be um, a bit more difficult to play punk music. We wasn't really sure where it was going and we got and the chance to do the last that album on um, came along. Yeah. that was on um
0: so we never had a, uh, one little
2: Indian gave us we've the chance we never had a
0: manager or anything because has always done it. But then this guy, uh Franny, tried to be um our manager and got us like air dos and set up a studio for, for to do to do um a showcase and all that and we sort of tightened up the music, wrote a few like sort of uh, more popier songs, I suppose, and uh, and we did a showcase and we got some record companies in and all that. Well, and it
2: was kind of weird because one of the songs I wrote, uh, for some reason, it was sent to Chrysalis, and they rang me up and said, yeah, that's a brilliant song, you know, you sound like Debbie Harry or something, and then he asked me if I'd done any music before, and when he found out it was Rubella Ballet, that's it, foamed down, you know. So that happened to us a couple of times. We've
0: turned down so many record yeah. companies that have and they've d- turned down asked down. us down. <laughs> you know, yeah, they've offered us like album deals and like huge, mo- I mean, like, lots of money up front and stuff. But they've said that we want to change. What you look like change this, the, like, the the meaning of your lyrics, change the way you look, change this, and like, we were like, get you know, that one, get stuffed. And uh, we walked out. Uh, we've turned so many people down, and then to and then. <laughs> To make matters worse, we finally found out that Vegas Banquet wanted to sign us, and we were quite interested. And then we heard that uh, Fuzzbox, you know, we've got Fuzzbox, and we are going to use it? We've got a deal. And uh, we heard this rumor that they would got our deal. And we were like, no, don't be stupid. And then someone else told us, oh, you never, you never guess what we heard? And then we were like, what? And they keep saying, oh yeah, supposedly the, the the rep went to the wrong gig and signed the wrong band up. I mean, we didn't believe it until a couple of months ago when uh, somebody confirmed that. So <laughs> how, somebody l- how, l- yeah, yeah, how lucky can we? How lucky can we? Can we be?
1: Blimey, yes, because they were on. Um... Bindaloo Records, um, Rob Lloyd from the Nightingales, he'd set up that label, hadn't he, in the Midlands, and uh, mm-hmm. that had Ted Chippington on. And then the Fuzzbox came along, and I believe that that first album, Boston Steve Austin, became quite successful. And then I think, yeah, it was... Well, did you say it was Warner Music they went to, didn't they, and did one, one major album? Yeah, it
0: was... It was, it was oh, I can't remember which major one. But... but... So many approaches. It's always so.
1: difficult because a lot of people who then sign to that major label, that's also the death of the band because, you know, everyone wants them. Because there was quite a lot of bands who did the first album, they have a really good time, they then get signed to Virgin or another one of these, <laughs> and then they get they get the producer and then they get the, you know, people start saying, right, we want you to do this, this and this. And one, uh-huh. one indie band is like, they wanted them to go and support take that and it's like we 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 don't want to support take that we you know we want to be you know we're more kind of west coast kind of R.E.M. kind of stuff. We, we don't want to be, support, you know, and it was a bit like the, the battles they had. And again, yeah. it was like, and then we split up because it was like, well, we can't, we can't work with this. But yeah, there were several people who worked, you know, because you think Virgin Records, Richard Branson, it's all going to be wonderful and it's immediately, you know, you've suddenly got a line manager or a boss, haven't you, who's going to tell you how everything's going to be. So it's, um, you know, and, and the 80s also had that terrible mainstream production sound that was very kind of like that Trevor's Horn production. Oh, yeah, which mm-hmm. kind of
0: the clause that stuck out in the contracts that we laughed our heads off. It says that um, that if you're doing a TV uh, present, if you're going to go on TV and you've got the hump, then we can- <laughs> we can put someone... That looks like you in, the, in your place.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, should, they could have done that with Morrissey, couldn't they, actually? Because he, yeah. he used to often pull kicks <laughs> like that. So then, did it feel like a wrench when did you have a moment where you all sat down and said, That's that, to quote Jim Morrison, the end of the band, part one? <gasps> no, it's, it's been more
2: a case of um, different guitarists leaving. Or bass players leaving, and I was having to get find another guitarist, um, and then rehearse with them, and it just takes so long that each well, time I even mean, before we it, didn't yeah. really
0: want a deal either, but everyone kept going, oh you should get a deal, you should get a deal. And we were, like, we're, we're, were all quite happy, and then so we tried to get a deal, and then would no one would give us a deal. Or they want to change us into fucking take that or something. Um, it was just, it was just never right. I mean, and we started thinking we were cursed. It was like we must be cursed. It's just that, uh, uh, and I think, um, I mean, I think even when we did get a good offer, we sent them the wrong tape. It, we sent them a rehearsal tape instead of the, instead of the studio tape. So I don't know.
2: And everything was a bit more difficult to contact each other. Oh my keep, god, yeah. You know, because, like in, in the beginning, we used to have to send people a cassette tape and they'd get hundreds of cassette tapes, whether they'd yeah. listen to ours or not, I don't know. So it was always quite complicated and easy to lose contact with the people that had even shown an interest. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: so. Well, it's interesting you talk about the, the sort of lack of money because I did an interview with um, Fast Eddie and he said that um, Motorhead had had no money, you know, not not enough to. I don't know, piss in a pot, or some of those, mm-hmm. one of those kind of sayings. And he said that were well, one gig, they had to sort of vandalise the van and get the AA to pick them up and bring them back to London because they had no petrol money left. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, we did that. We've we, done that before. We got,
2: um, <laughs> <laughs> our Fucking van hell. broke down and they took us to a gig in Nottingham <laughs> and we just got Holy there shit. in time. Um, and they took us on the back of a, you know, it, yeah, they relayed no, us. Yeah,
0: we've done that. And then
2: the next day, we oh. were allowed to call them again and they had to take us all the way home because we didn't have the money to repair the, the van, did we? Yes. So, that's how we got home, yeah we, I mean that's what I'm saying, like one of the most difficult things was um trying to afford to to actually get to a gig, and yeah. sometimes we'd pay to get there, like we went to Liverpool once, and when we got there, they'd changed promoter, and the gig wasn't actually on, so <laughs> we lost you yeah. know all that money going there. And the cost of the van—that happened to us quite a lot in those days. Yes, because it was interesting.
1: Because the Wolfhounds, who were from London, Essex, or they'd gone—I think it was Glasgow—and they got there, and the gig had been pulled. And you know, this was in the eighties, and they didn't have any money, so they had to busk for about a week and and sleep on various people's floors to get enough cash to get all the way back to London. You're thinking, you know, or go into the phone box to sort of, you know, either make a phone call or receive a phone call from somebody pretending it's not a phone box that smells of piss, which is tricky. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it, life was quite complicated, really. Well, not complicated, but it was a bit long-winded just to, because, you
2: know... Think well, if it's hard it, to contact people. So, you know, nowadays you'd know whether the gig was on or not, wouldn't you, because you'd see it advertised on Facebook and all the rest of it. But in those days it was like one phone call to actually get the gig, talk to the promoter, ask him to do all the, you know, the advertising and everything and then you wouldn't see them until you turned up at the gig and hoped that it was on. Yes. So it was a lot more complicated, and sometimes, you know, as well as that, some well, of the... last that
0: time don't... that Dan and Gemma didn't want to do the gig, Annie had just left, she did two gigs, and then she didn't want to do it, but, but there was a gig booked. Because it didn't have the internet, and because we couldn't ring anyone up to say don't go to the gig, me and Zilla still went. And I remember someone asked us a question recently. They said, well, what, you just just, <laughs> so you used to just go to gigs and then just crash on stage and then ask anyone from the audience to get on stage and play, like, and he had question mark, question mark. We were like, yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> we were having a laugh. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like, oh, I'm so really sorry there's an announcement tonight. I'm really sorry we can't play because it was like... Well,
2: plus people didn't know what to expect. Like yeah. now you can look up a venue online, you can look up a band online. In those days, if you wanted to know if you liked the band, you had to turn up and to see whether they were any good
0: and commit you fully know. and all that and yeah.
2: punks also it was a new scene wasn't it people didn't really know what to expect so you could turn up at youth clubs or you know this the one the you're bit. just saying yeah. was um chelmsford football club you know they used to have their own little uh fan club you know and you could go there and play gigs and I and mean, then half, half, half
0: of the waxwork dummies ended up playing for us. And,
2: yeah, the waxwork dummies.
0: And turn then I'd his, his drum kit and movies. break all his skins or something. It was it was an epic it, night. I mean, yeah,
2: it, we it were truly just all was. friends together having a laugh and yeah. creating different
0: Getting pissed, things
2: to having, do. <laughs> just
0: having an absolutely brilliant time but with, yes. a, with each other, without
2: yeah. with
0: violence. It was just well, brilliant. We were all working it,
2: together to yeah. get the venues to play in and to actually... Being a band and to support each other in bands and making fanzines and making clothes, everything was just about trying to enjoy yourself. Really. Yeah, it
0: wasn't about sort of like... Money. I mean, it wasn't like, like
2: about <laughs> making it, money. You know, no. On Facebook, like
0: everyone seems to get slagged off for everything. It, 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 was, it wasn't it was about
2: being like famous, are you? Yeah, it wasn't about anything. It was about...
0: It was about being a punk and well, enjoying yourself. I keep going back to the top of the pots. <laughs> it's keep sitting in front sort of the pots in your mum and dad's front room thinking, oh, I want to kill myself. You know, that's all I did. It was just so boring. I'm <laughs> literally going to kill myself until punk came along. So sure yes.
1: So then, you know, you had the nineties, obviously doing other things. Then, when what what happened when in two thousand when you decided, you know, a moment came, a spark that you thought actually the let's get the band together again.
0: Ah, so well, we People keep saying this. We had not
1: split. Like, the whole
0: the the, the thing is. The Thing is, when we keep saying we've probably had about 26 27 guitarists, people joined the band, they thought there was going to be money in it. When they found out there wasn't, they left. It's as simple as (laughs) that, it really is a short story like that. But also, I think the 90s
2: in this country, the 90s was all about the rave scene, so like I said earlier, it was a bit more difficult to get gigs in the 90s in UK, but um, and we spent time. You know, we both had to go to work all the time as well to keep ourselves in money. Um, so because we'd be losing money from the band, so we was always making it up from our wages. So right? we didn't
0: just get a band together for, for the for the two thousand gig because we had we all we were already training at Paris, which is Phil's girlfriend. Phil was in the band. Dan had joined. Uh, Pete Fender had joined again, and uh, and we were trying to get some. Like so that, when people left, like we'd get really great, we'd do gigs like we would do like the, the crass thing with Dan, we'd do some epic gigs and then Dan would leave and then we'd like struggle to find someone else, so there'd be big gaps.
2: Yeah, 'cause like in nineteen eighty seven we went and played um, in America, so in Los Angeles. And we played, you know, we supported the mission, who actually got arrested and we didn't do the gig, but we supported Faith No More. And it was, you know, it was a really great tour. And then when we came back, both the bass player and the guitarist left. Yeah. So, <laughs> so
0: another great big gap where people expected to come and see us again. But like, I was speaking to like, somebody yesterday said, oh, I couldn't believe it. Like, I didn't get to see you. And it's because. People would join and people would leave. I think also it was, quite, would leave.
2: it was quite difficult to be a punk. So a lot of people that were in the band, you know, if they were losing money, they were getting a hassle because they weren't earning any money by going to work. So a lot of people came into the band, didn't make any money and left to actually go back to work and stuff. So it was all that as well, wasn't
0: that the and then and then you did the, the the worst thing, which is you accept low amounts of money for gigs, and then of course you you end up being are, like labeled like a cheap band and then, and you can't ask for like more money and it's it's kind of it spirals down to practically doing it for expenses isn't it? Yes, which is new. Yes,
2: it was a case of, you know, the 90s was harder to get gigs by the 2000s.
0: And the um, equipment, we're doing were tour, bit... the equipment, the amount, the amount of drum skins we had to buy and uh, and guitar strings, and you, you don't and think guitars that, And, and drums. drumsticks, <laughs> and it's all counting the hundreds, you know. Yeah. We used to start a tour, it cost 100 quid for the drum skins, Stings, yeah. 40 quid for drumsticks, and then £10 for a couple of sets of strings each. It, it, and, then it, the and then the petrol, and then
2: petrol, and it was an just just actual nightmare. Yeah.
0: yeah, so I think
2: it was a case of, you know, um, we played when we could, and yeah. we gigged when we could, and when we had the money, and when we had the band. And I think by the 2000s, um, it was quite easier to get gigs again. It come back to playing, you know, people wanting gigs and there being a more of a scene again, so. You know, and we didn't have
0: a secret fund of there. money. Uh, a, lot, a, a lot of people say, uh, oh, I haven't got any money, but they've actually got some stashed somewhere else. Well, we actually just didn't have any money, and that was it. We went down to, You know, there were weeks we literally didn't, you know, lived on tins of flipping soup all week. Um, you know, and it's just the way it was. I mean, we're not complaining, we're not moaning there, and I wouldn't go back and change any of it. It's just that I don't think people understand Yeah, like, like, now, how... If, um...
2: With the gigs that I've got recently in America—that's been through Facebook. So it's a lot easier there. People can contact me and say, "Do you want to play this gig?" and "This is what you're going to get," and you know, yeah. and send me the money beforehand as well. Yeah. Which is, you know, not something they would have done in the 1970s, 80s. No one would have sent you any money. I don't even know. If and hotels.
0: Yeah. Uh, everyone yeah. having their hotels. We used to sleep on concrete floor. We'd even we'd even fight over who was going to get
2: the lino and
1: who'd get the concrete. Yes, I know. Well, it, it, well, I was actually there was two people I spoke to about touring. One was the guy Fish, who was in Marillion, and the other guy was from the <laughs> God the Godfather. But he the the guy from Fish, he was a really lovely guy. He said that because he's quite tall and it, also he has a really bad back. And, you know, now you get to that age where you have to sort of literally do sort of 20 gigs in 20 days because of the finances and just making some trying to cover the cost. He said that he really has to have a proper mattress now because he just couldn't, you know, after two days sleeping on a bad mattress, you know, he would be a cripple. So I think you do get to that age where you do have to have a few, a few basic things.
2: I'm six foot nine. nine. We've
0: just we've got a new guitarist called Matt. He's six foot um, eight or something. He's like a huge, great hulking, and we both like we are both absolutely insist on being able to sleep properly. Otherwise. Just the next day, it's like you've it been run over. It's terrible.
1: Yes. So when you started, because you put some compilations together in the last decade, did that feel like a really nice process of sort of being able to kind of catalogue and archive your work a bit more than... It was, in- uh, yeah, it, we, everything, was on, it, everything was
0: in bits. It was, it was here and there on tapes and stuff. So it was like the one time we finally got to digitise everything. So then we had a collection of all of our music and we knew a publisher and he said, why don't we put it out as on CD? I think it was on album as well, yeah, with the coloured vinyl. No, color it was, on CD.
2: No, it was
0: and, on CD. Yeah, we wanted to, yeah. We were, actually, the thing is, because it was all stop, start, stop, start, stop, start with Rubella Ballet and we didn't basically get enough records done, the ones that we did do are really scarce, really hard to get hold of, hardly anyone, people complain that they can't get hold of our stuff. So we thought, well, let's release all of it, remastered, on the CD, and that's what we did.
1: Which is, um, yes, it must feel... um, And also, you did mention, and and the one thing that I've noticed, 30 years seem seem to be a passing of time where suddenly everyone goes, let's make a film about this band, because there's one (laughs) on the slits and L7 and the wedding present and chills and the go-between. So obviously, you suddenly realise, yes, people are interested. Did you manage to capture any of your kind of performances and I just wondered if you were interested you mentioned a book earlier which is always a, a good one but I just wondered if, if you've got any sort of film or you know there's any potential of being able to yep. kind of archive something like that
2: yeah we've got um, we made um, we were the first band to make promo videos to our first um, <laughs> oh, yeah. single so in I think it was 1984 we did Money Talks and we did we made a video to go with that um, and that was um, bought off of us by Phonogram. Mm-hmm. Well, Phonogram took the money. They didn't give us the money. And it went on all the video jukeboxes, which was a new thing in 1984, in every single pub Um, because there wasn't that many bands that had videos. So it was like, you know, all the massive bands like the Beatles and I don't know who else was on there. And our track (laughs) we made uh, for £200, we'd gone to have made made a video and our track was on. So we got letters from all over the country telling us that they – they'd gone, our friends had gone into pubs and they were playing our music over and over again. Yes. (laughs) So, so yeah, we've got um, some videos of us playing a couple of songs in 1984 and we filmed quite a few little bits here and there. And some of that footage you can see in my film, She's a Punk Rocker. Um, Do you know that film? No,
1: I don't actually. Okay, so
2: (laughs) basically, that's fine. Um, Basically, in... um, 1997, I was at university and I got a chance to use a camera and um, I was making a documentary, a 10 minute documentary about punk. And um, after I screened the film, which had a couple of punk women in it that I knew out of crass and etc. After I screened it, all the other students came up to me and said they never knew anything about punk and they were really interested in my film. And so it struck me that um, all the documentaries I've ever seen about punk is usually about punk men, so it's usually about the Clash or the Sex Pistols. And sometimes they might say something about, say, Debbie Harry or maybe...
1: Susan maybe, Banshees, yeah, isn't it? Exactly.
2: <laughs> so exactly. And also the people that made the, the documentaries weren't punks. And um, The things they said annoyed me. You know, there'd always be a narrator telling us a little bit of, about the history of punk and it was always crap. So I thought to myself, well, you know what, Um, I've been a punk this this long and I'm in a band and because of that I've known, you know, I know all the punk women that I could possibly know and so I decided that I'd get in touch with as many as I could and filmed them. So I asked them to do an oral history where I asked them about uh, how they became punks and, you know, so their oral history about punk. And so I filmed um, Polystyrene, Gay Advert, Vice Versa, The Women Out of Crass, um, Brigandidge, uh, Michelle, and so, you know, people out of Hay Women. And so I filmed an hour of each woman, and I've got about 30 women. And what I did was I decided to make a film called She's a Punk Rocker, and it's about women in punk and what we, why we became punk, what we did, and stuff like that. I can send you a link later, but basically it was just a film that I made with no money, as usual. Um, it took me some time... To um, I went to a friend to edit at an edit suite, but it was in the early days when computers had only just um, sort of only were new, so it was quite hard to get stuff on and save it. And he kept deleting my film, which was fair enough. Um, but in the end, it got to the point where it was a there's a new program out, and we could use it, and it was proper um, proper broad- broadband quality, so it could be played on screens properly. And uh, I bought the edit program and we made the film at home on our own and uh, it's called Cheese punk rocker and since then we went back to america and i filmed some women in america and i'm now making a documentary about the whole of the punk scene so around the globe so women from america so the first one was about women in uk and now i'm making one about all the punk women so i'm hoping to do that soon
1: wow that is – I'm impressed. And it's, it's – um, I know it's nothing like a good project to get your teeth into, is there really? I just – I always find a good project. But um, I thought I was going to say – God, my mind's gone blank down. Oh, yes, America, because often that's the thing that um, – because I was, I might have just mentioned that most bands last have that five-year narrative. You know, they get together, 12 months, John Peel session, then the album, things are going quite well, second album, not so well. Then, then, you know, if anybody ever says they go to America, they always go, and we came back and split up. How did you, you seem to, like America seemed to have been quite good for you.
2: Um, it was, yeah, we had a really great time. We were looked after by a friend who'd come, you know, we'd only met him, but by him coming to our house and staying with us, because in those days... People came from all over the world and would often kind of stay with us or Crass or Girl. and Girls. Uh, and we found out that he lived in Hollywood and that he was a DJ. And he said, you know, you've got to come over. So we did. We, me and Sid just flew over there and we booked the gigs. When we got there, we got a gig at The Screen, which held about 5,000 people. And we knew that was enough money to pay for the rest of the band to come over. And so whilst we was in America, we just booked some gigs with other promoters and we played in um, San Francisco, Gilman Street. And you know we had some great gigs in America, and we 've just recently played on the East Coast and the west coast of America because um, like I said now that is it 's much easier to sort all these gigs out. People will actually send me money beforehand, so it 's a lot easier
1: that 's fantastic and just lastly, I mean um, yeah, sorry if this is a bit of a tedious tedious question, never mind but um, what would you what would you say to an eighteen year old self if you could have said something? When you were starting that you think or could um, have
2: I, I would have said choose an easier name for your band that people can spell and that they can remember um and i would have also said
0: don't say no going on cross, cross records. records
2: yeah because that was a big mistake really because it would have helped um, people to know us because even today um i don't think as many people know us as what we, they would have done if we'd have been on cross records we know that because you know Sid played drums for Fluxaping Indians on Crass records and to this day they still sell thousands every week you
1: know yes god it's one of those
2: and also, I think the other thing I would have done if I'd have had the money because I did try at the time but I didn't have the money would have um I would have definitely spent money on making sure I filmed more stuff so because what happened was um when I made my documentary all the women that I interviewed um not many had photos of the past or even film but those that did what happened was most bands like Rubella Ballet and Poison Girls the films they had when they were on tour was them at the beach or at the fair nobody filmed themselves or the punks or at, at gigs it was just like you know here's our holiday film. so it was kind of funny really but um really we should have all filmed each other in the early days oh god I know I just got a book which is a guy um Named Gary Green,
1: who who's just done a book, which is kind of um, it's quite small, but it's amazing photographs of around about 1976 to 1980 of uh, the CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, and right. uh, and you just kind of look and and you know obviously a lot of the characters you've we've grown to know now and and just members of the audience, but it's just great to see the detail of those, the interior of those places as well as what the sort of the general crowd looked like, and yeah. and you just think and and he was a good you know he's good black and white photographer. So, you know, the pictures are good, and, and it is lovely, you know, I just think, because we don't, you know, now everything get, gets filmed by everybody, but back yeah, then, that, you know, you just think, oh, my God, it wasn't, you know, no one documented that. that yeah, writing. that was yeah. that
2: was one of my main criteria for uh, the women that was filming. In fact, that's why I ended up with more women that were actually in bands because they tended to have more archive footage because otherwise yeah. all I'd have in my film would be talking heads, but I, you know, so... I tried to get as much archive footage as I could that belonged to the women because I also, you know, I didn't have money to pay copyright yes. and I didn't have money to pay copyright on the music. So some of the music, you know, is X-ray specs, So I haven't paid copyright on it. So when it was, somebody took my film and put it on um, Netflix, but I had to take it off because I hadn't paid the um, copyright on it because oh, I haven't paid yes. thousands, you know.
1: Yes, that's a tricky... I know there's all those things you never really realise until you went, oh. Yeah. (laughs) And that is the end of the interview. There was a little bit more, but uh, you didn't need to worry about that. Um, A big thank you to Rubella Ballet and especially, obviously, Sid True Love and Zilla Minx for giving me the time for that. And uh, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. It's always good to hear from you, as long as it's positive. Otherwise, why bother? Um, And also, all the shows have been archived if you're vaguely interested, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Just go there. It's all good stuff. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. See you later.